Welcome everybody to the very first edition from the Data on Kubernetes community of NaderCube. All right. I am the exclusively non-Dutch person here today. <laughs> I will be attempting to say a couple of things in Dutch or better yet to be inviting some of my Dutch translators to help me out. I told Avi <laughs> this actually before we started. Nobody is allowed to do the typical American thing and say, I'm so excited. If you're going to say I'm so excited, you have to say it in Dutch. And Ari, how do you say that? Uh, I, I, what did I send you? I don't know. I was sent, I was sent Some, it to Something with enthusiast. I've been so enthusiastic. Yeah, enthusiastic. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It doesn't really translate well, right? We, it, no, it doesn't really, really translate. It doesn't really, it's not really something Dutch. <laughs> true, true, true. <laughs> but that's kind of what we're here to do today is to find out about all different things Dutch, the Dutch way of approaching things. I do have to say I am a grand admirer of the Netherlands. Uh, I've been there a few times and have family friends that are from there. And I really like the down to earth, very practical approach that the, the Dutch generally have. Uh, as an American, I know that sometimes we get too energetic and passionate about some things. <laughs> it may not necessarily require so much energy and passion, which is very, well, it was very nice. Avi and I actually had the good fortune of working together in the same company a few years ago. And it was great to work with someone who was so practical about problem solving and, not, and focusing on the issue and not making things personal. Um, but that being said, um, Avi, perhaps you can introduce yourself a little bit more formally, explain your role, where you're working, what you're doing with Kubernetes. Yeah, so um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm Ari, uh, living in Bilbao, just like uh, Bart lives in Barakallo, but just uh, next door. But uh, we're living in the Basque Country. Eh? Um, that's also where my journey in the cloud started, actually, working for uh, V Global. It was called by then. Now it's called V, I think, just V. Uh, that's where we started working with, um, yeah, uh, full cloud environment. Everything was running 100% on on the cloud. And that's also where my journey started related to, to Kubernetes now. So at the end of my time there, actually, so the last half year before I left, uh, they started uh, implementing and designing solutions on, on, on Kubernetes. Um, yeah, it was, that was a, a very big challenge, actually. That was one of the biggest challenges I think I've, I've had. Unfortunately, after that, I haven't been that active uh, around Kubernetes until we, uh, we actually we started uh, getting into this into into the community. Mm. And now at my current job at Curaro, um, I'm working as a yeah as a cloud system engineer, uh, where uh, we're providing or we're setting up a full uh, a full automated CI/CD environment, and we're planning also to um, to start working with Kubernetes in the actually in the short term within within now and and a half a year or something like that to run uh, yeah, certain microservices actually so not yet data on kubernetes but uh, we are there we're uh, getting there but getting there and, and we're getting and, there yeah. and the important thing there i think as well too is a mentality and that's something we're going to be bringing in um yeah. jeffrey can you introduce yourself really quickly you obviously have your own story with kubernetes how did you get started um well so that's a how did i get started i uh, good question so uh, I've been doing storage for as long as I can remember. Uh, I rolled into it very strangely, um, and uh, I've never inspired a, a career in, in, in computing in general. Um, I have a, a master's degree in electrical engineering, so it, it's, it's kind of related, but somehow, some way, long story short, I ended up in storage. Um, mm -hmm worked with distributed storage systems, the more traditional uh, NAS-based uh, systems. And I was kind of wondering, it's like, what I'm going to do next? And um, I was thinking about, well, uh, maybe I'll just, you know, start to do, I don't know, more like management type, like related things. And, uh, but I got approached by Evan, who is uh, uh, my CEO, um, mm -hmm. and he was uh, then just recently joined Maya Data. And they had this idea of applying the uh, container slash Kubernetes primitives towards storage to get a more granular approach to how you can configure your storage as you move stateful workloads within uh, Kubernetes. And that's now two and a half years ago, maybe, maybe three, can't recall exactly. Um, and so I've, I've, I've joined as CTO and I am there uh, working on uh, building this new storage system that uh, adopts the container approaches and, and cloud native design from, from the get-go. And while doing so, we, we try to obviously write for the future um, and we'll talk more about that, what, what that 
you know, could potentially mean. Um, but a lot of things come together that made it a very interesting challenge. And uh, yeah, so I'm literally building storage systems uh, that Kubernetes can leverage to store its data. So that's why the, you know, this, this community is kind of interesting, like data on Kubernetes, like, sounds like a good match. You're in the right place. <laughs> and, this is not yeah. the first time, and this is the first time we've had you on. And it's also not the first time we have you on with somebody from Datastacks. Um, so let me refresh my Dutch to not say the, the dangerous word that I can't say in, in English. Ich bin so enthusiast. <laughs> Perfect <laughs> pronunciation. Really Perfect nailing it. Uh, we'll turn it over to our friend from Datastax. Michelle, can you introduce yourself and talk about your experience about how you got into Kubernetes? Yes, yeah, sure, sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me, by the way. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> no, anyway, so... so <laughs> So uh, first of all, I have to I have to uh, give my apologies because my colleague uh, Appy should have been here also. Uh, you unfortunately had to attend uh, some some really important other stuff. Uh, so no yeah, he cannot be here. I'm here though. Um, I've been in uh, data management, distributed data management for about 15 years. Uh, so I well, I think. I think I've seen uh, quite a bit about, uh, you know, data management, uh, how you do uh, data governance on top of it, um, you know, how you make that uh, available in real time, that kind of stuff. And um, it was about four months ago that I got in contact with somebody from uh, from Datastax. He was talking about Cassandra and essentially Cassandra was the only database that I haven't tried yet. So I thought, you know, let's try it out. And I fell in love with it. I just fell in love with it, with the elegant architecture. And uh, so there I am working for Datastax now. Uh, the relation with, with Kubernetes is really cool, I think, uh, because you know, uh, we, we also saw Kubernetes uh, rise you know, out of microservices architectures. And you know, it's, it's just a, a platform that, that eases the operational uh, burden uh, for, uh, for operators. And, and the cool thing here is that uh, if you look at uh, something like Cassandra, the way that Cassandra has been built, I, I said I was I fell in love with elegant architecture. It fits so well with uh, the way that Kubernetes works, right? The, the way that you that that you ideally work with resources and distribute work over uh, the pods in a in a Kubernetes cluster. You know, so that's uh, that's why I'm here. I'm actually working with some uh, some customers now that are moving to Kubernetes. They're moving their data management to Kubernetes. Um, and I have to say, it looks really promising. Uh, I haven't, um, I haven't uh, run into a big issue yet, so. Very good. That's good yeah. to hear. And that, that's exactly what we want to hear because a lot of times there's a sort of resistance to this or, you know, I need to see more examples. And that's what was interesting. And I want to hear, get your feedback about looking at the Dutch tech landscape um, because on Tuesday, we had our regular meetup with, uh, with Olaf uh, Mullenveld, who's the CTO and co-founder of VAMP, and they focused on um, uh, release, uh, software release pipelines orchestration. And so he was giving me a little back, bit of background about like sort of major tech hubs in, in the Netherlands. And then each one is where we can see different things going on in the, the Kubernetes and also data, we can say, uh, landscape. And so I'm gonna get this where I'm gonna need your help. So obviously from where near Ari is from, because Ari is from, and I'm sure I'm gonna say this perfectly, Vlaringen, yes? Vlaringen, yeah, really good. <laughs> Every time I'm getting closer, um, which, is near, which is near Rotterdam, which obviously having you know, the big port presence, there's a, I mean, a physical need for containers and then also a digital need to, for containers to be keeping track of all the stuff that's going on there and running applications. Then obviously in Amsterdam, major tech talent hub, you have you know, lots of enterprise level companies and, and sexy new companies. And then from what I also understand from a conversation I had with a Dutch company this week that's called Red Cubes, um, that, that I heard about through the uh, Google podcast regarding Kubernetes, they are based out of Utrecht, I believe. And I think Ari was mentioning that there's kind of a big, a large like big data community there. So it's kind of a natural fit. Anything to add from any of our Dutch natives about what's going on in the Netherlands? Well, in terms of locations, um, personally, I live close by Amsterdam. 
so a lot of uh, engagements that I have with customers and 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 people that are interested in data management uh, is with uh, organizations in Amsterdam. And I have to say that uh, in Amsterdam there's another hub, and that's the financial services hub. Mm-hmm. Right. So Amsterdam is really big in terms of financial services, and uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's a whole different story. Uh, again, I guess. You know, because uh, when you come across financial services, they're even still running stuff on bare metal, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, and, and that's, for that's a reason, a good thing, right? For, yeah, well, for a reason, for a reason, you know, but you can imagine that for those types of organizations, it can be quite a journey uh, to yeah. start thinking about, okay, what's this Kubernetes? You know, I hear everybody talking about it, but what, what can it do for me, right? So, yep. That's it. That's a yeah. good point. I think also like the sort of resistance that we encounter is that for some people it's legacy systems or it's just that some people might need to retire so that these kind of changes can be made. Jeffrey, what have you seen? Yeah, so I, I spoke to several companies that they 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 catch on the, the container story and the, the CICD approach and they all see the benefits and then Kubernetes is like the missing piece in terms of, okay, but how do I orchestrate all these containers and how do I upgrade them and whatnot? Um, but reality is, is that a lot of these companies and, 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 and not like, the, like the, the real big ones, but let's say the companies that have IT, but IT is not their core business, let's say. And, and they mm-hmm. struggle sometimes with, okay, so we want to go there. It, it sounds all good, but how do you actually get there? And mind you, we cannot just turn off the switch on those old systems, right? And, mm-hmm. and so the question is, how do we like create this hybrid model where we can innovate and, and, and try to uh, re-implement certain services while we kind of squeeze out the old ones? And I use the word term squeeze out. I think there is a official pattern in called the strangler pattern where you, you basically wrap <laughs> existing so, so to give you like a very concrete example, I was talking to a company that has acquired several companies across the globe and they had like one big issue and they knew it was costing them around 50 million uh, euros a year. Um, but the sheer fact that they could not tell if all personnel was actually assigned. And so they hired external personnel to do certain contractual work that they knew that they needed to do. Um, because the fine was bigger than the, than the 50 million. And so, so the, the question is like, how can we, and this is a very practical example, how can we have nine different HR databases that we acquired as we grew into one and make that all work for us, right? So they have all the data, they just can't get it out. And so how do you go from there? And, and obviously, uh, I think one of, one of the interesting things about the Dutch is also is that they, they, they talk a lot before they actually start doing. So everything needs to be dotted and crossed before they start working on things. And so it, it's sometimes a little bit, uh, they, they, they get stuck in, in this, this, like nobody has the real oversight and things can go, uh, you know, pretty bad. But- They have um, a word for that, right? It's called the Polder model. Right, exactly. It's like keep I, talking, keep talking until everybody's <laughs> okay. Never mind. Um, but it, this is like a very simple example, and 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 we work hard with them, trying to find like, don't try to boil the ocean. Try to find something tangible where you have short cycles where you can actually demonstrate that the, the effort and the work that you did now yields a result. All databases are wrapped into an API. And that's like the start because then you have the abstraction and once you have the abstraction, what is underneath is not all that important anymore. Um, so these are, are very, very you know, simple examples. Uh, similarly, uh, it's like I have an existing database. I want to connect that to Kubernetes. Um, how do I do that? Do I first need to put all my data inside Kubernetes before I can use my database within Kubernetes? Obviously, the answer to that is no, but these are very, um, you know, simple or not simple, but questions that live uh, by these people, maybe not for the developer necessarily, because developers never see problems, just opportunities, um, but the people responsible for a whole department might, you know, uh, get a little bit nervous to sort of speak. If it was like, yeah, we're going to move the database. It's like, really? Are you sure? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's, that's a little bit of the things that I've seen. Uh, yeah. Good. Now, uh, first to go to Michelle and then also go to Ari is that, you know, Michelle, you're working directly with clients. And something we talk a lot about a lot is, okay, 
before, you know, we can get into lots of technical details about operators, about this, that, and the other. But one of the fundamental things here, you know, we have an expression in the U.S. that if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. And I also want Ali to, <laughs> to get on this afterwards. But if you're approaching this, you know, from a business case of saying, look, this is a good business decision to be making to move your data to Kubernetes. How do those yeah. conversations work? How do you provide context to say, look, this is a good idea. Is it for everybody? How do you do it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's really a good, good question. Um, you know, because in the end, in the end, in a, in a commercial organization, I guess in most organizations, it's, it's also about total cost of ownership. Right. And uh, so, so if you look at Kubernetes, I think that there is uh, a real advantage there in terms of operations, uh, the operational burden becomes less. You know, it uh, it becomes easier to spin up uh, to to spin up new environments, new pods. Um, you know, and and as Jeffrey also said, it, it allows you to start playing around, uh, understand what works, fail fast, and move on. Right? Uh, it's it's much more difficult to do, to do that on premises. And in particular, one of the things that really resonates with customers that I talk to is the is is the multi cloud aspect. You know, because sure, you have Kubernetes and you can run Kubernetes on premises. Uh, all the big cloud providers, they also have, of course, Kubernetes implementations. But the cool thing about Kubernetes is that you can start spanning clusters over multiple clouds. You know, and this is just mind-blowingly cool for me and for most customers. Because, you know, personally, I, I've seen cloud providers fail also. Right, not often. It's 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 rock solid, but it happens. Right. So last week I had I had Google Cloud uh, go go down for me for for a part uh, for a small part. Um, you know, if you have the possibility to to uh, to well to 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 solve that issue by spanning your services over multiple clouds, which is something that you can start doing with Kubernetes. And of course you need to write technology for it. Um, then that is a big advantage um, for customers. So that's the first one. Um, second one is if you do that, you, you also have the, 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 the possibility to decide where you are going to store the data, right? So you, you, you can decide, hey, I have my personally identifiable information in terms of GDPR. Oh, wait, I'm going to store that on, on premises, right? Um, because that's really, really important for me. Likewise, with PCI data, for instance, uh, 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 payment information. Oh, I'm going to, to really trust GCP on that. So I'm going to store that on GCP. Analytical data. You know, oh, I want to, to make use of the cool analytical features of, um, of, uh, of Azure. All right, so I'm going to move that analytical data uh, to, to Azure while still being in the same cluster, while still all being highly available and, and readily uh, available for operational use. So I think those are some really, really big, huge business benefits. Um, or there are things, uh, opportunities that lead to business benefits for customers. And that's, that's something that really, really resonates well. Is yeah. that, like you said, that agility and freedom and comfort? Ari, what are you going to say? No, I was going to jump in on it because you you mentioned my name before. No, I like it, this, this This brings us to, to the, the discussion that we, at the end, we always end up a bit in the same direction now where we get to uh, costs versus now the expertise that you need also to implement it the security, the uh, is the mindset there to you know that the, this is the, the typical part where we go now always like are the companies really uh, ready for it? Do they know what it is? Like are they well? Uh, did they self-educate themselves? No, like uh, if you start talking, at least that's what I've seen uh, from experiences. It's and I, I, mean, I don't want to be against uh, this is uh, the Kubernetes solution on, on multi-cloud and. And then no, like we're, we're going back to the Dutch concept of polder model. I think that's that's yes. <laughs> yes. That's, that's it. Yes, that's great. But that comes, <laughs> that comes out. That comes out. 
But what you see a lot on the market is that that when you start mentioning multi-cloud, uh, that you need to um, no, you need to have multiple machines to cover your load, and just in case something drops out or something, then especially the Dutch maybe see all the dollars disappearing or the euros disappearing there, no, and flowing away. So, yeah, no, that's 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 what 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 I've seen at least, right? Uh, talking to to different people. Um, and I've been talking or trying to engage with with bigger companies also for you know for to set up the these uh, Nedercube uh, editions that we're trying to organize. And I've been talking to to some old schoolmates that work in Shell, for example. Uh, I got one working also in KPM KPMG. Um, and then what do they say? Yeah, we're just running still on uh, on a Docker cluster, for example, and we're comfortable with that. And it's running on web apps uh, now, or uh, in Azure, then, for example. And nah, we're okay with that at the moment because, you know, they're afraid that it's running out of hand when once they they get to to something else. No, I, I don't know what it is exactly, but it's the the mindset, the the knowledge of what it, what there is, because the solutions of of data stacks and of uh, Maya data. Uh, yeah, they are. They are good. They are super good to to go. They 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 they're, they're a perfect fit for this. Mm. You know, Ari, it also depends if I, if I may uh, may jump in. Um, you know, it, it also depends a bit on the use case, right? And if you're, for instance, a regulated vertical. Um, so what I see, for instance, in financial services is they they're interested in moving to the cloud, uh, but from a regulatory perspective, they need to have an exit strategy. Yeah, so it, it that yeah. that has nothing to do with functionality or business value. It has to do with the fact that they just have to have an exit strategy. Yeah, and in that sense, having a solution uh, running with Kubernetes that allows you to just switch within, you know, I don't know how much, how many seconds from one cloud to the other cloud. Well, that's having an exit strategy. You know, so it, it's also. Uh, those kind of non-functional requirements that I think are really important. Yeah, yeah, and everything is available for that. I mean, the the like the cost management tools that uh, that we've tried or that we've seen, they're all uh, capable of uh, of grabbing those costs that go along with that, and to to manage it, to have visibility, to get your reports of both clouds, everything based on tags in groups, projects. You can see that. I mean, there's no. Uh, there's always a negative side, but there's not really a negative part point there. No, yeah. it's very interesting. Good. And Jeffrey, in your case as a CTO, uh, you know, when do you, how do you, you know, detect in the in the case of the customer if they have the right, you know, situation, the right use case to be to to apply the technologies of, of Maya Data, let's say, related to uh, to storage. Well, so it's it's usually, uh, or I should say, fortunately uh, for me at least, I think. The most interesting uh, cases are where they build something new, which opens opportunities. And and uh, because you're building something new, you obviously don't have this this legacy to pull in, and and that makes you know trying out new things a lot easier um, to, to start out with. And then they they rather quickly start to think about okay, mobility and and exit strategies, for example. So so those are absolutely valid points. And then they start to think about you know, what is it in fact that I'm actually trying to achieve and where are the, the scalability aspects that I need to have in order to make the architecture um, as I lay it out in such a way that it allows me to scale regardless of the actual uh, cloud infrastructure that I'm using. Because the, 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 the side, or not the side, the, the, the snake in the grass, let's say, is the cloud provider, right? Um, and um, because if, if you if you run on Amazon and, and they have fantastic services, but if you architect your application towards it running in Amazon, you'll find that having a hard time to move it on-prem if you, for whatever reason, need to do that. And mm -hmm. I've been involved in several cases where that was happening, where they 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 were fine with Amazon, but if for whatever reason they needed to to get out of there, they kind of needed the exact same environment on-prem, which is obviously not trivial uh, to do. So the, the, the composability and the extra level of abstraction that Kubernetes provides, that's, that mitigates that problem to a certain extent. And the reason when they are interested in, in using us is like, okay, so how can we achieve the same thing for data? Because 
spinning up containers, you can do that all day long. That's great. Um, through Kubernetes, you have this unified control plane. It doesn't really matter if you're kubectling against an Azure cloud or a Google cloud, let's say. But for data, things are a little bit more complicated. And when I say data, I actually mean the physical blocks that are laid out on the physical media. So I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about database data per se. Um, mm-hmm. But h- how do you abstract that, right? So I have my database now locally on this Kubernetes node through a stateful set, let's say. And now for some mm-hmm. reason or the other, I want another machine to connect to that. How can I do that? So um, these are the type of discussions uh, that, that we're having. And the other uh, thing that obviously you know, fuels these discussions a little bit are, are things around uh, DPUs, for example, um, CSI standardization. You know, what does it mean for me? How can I uh, ensure that I don't paint myself in a particular corner? Um, how do I uh, make sure that if I buy a very large uh, instance in the cloud that I can get the, the bang for my buck software architecturally wise because mm-hmm. The, the storage systems are getting faster and faster and storage for the most part now is, is faster than CPU. And that has never been the case for a long, long, long time, right? So a lot of these conversations fuel uh, a lot of the questions they have. And it's, it's yeah, so a lot of these things uh, lead to us getting involved one way or the other, yeah. Right. You, you would say also that the like external star storage or external storage, I mean, storage that's not hosted in the same cloud provider would be the future in that sense, no? Like, yeah, like it's the, yeah, it's it's the it's the it's it's the ability to 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 make your data as agile as the applications that they serve. Because for the for usually data sits on a box and it sits there, and you get this phenomenon as data gravity that everything starts to evolve around the data, and it has to be close to the data because latency and whatnot. And and if the storage blows away, all your microservices blow with it. So it, it it's like you know it's like doesn't really help. So, so as you decompose your services into microservices, so so does the data, and then things become more manageable because now you're not talking about, you know, copying I don't know two petabytes of data from A to B, but small 200 gig sets, which is still a reasonable amount, obviously, but um, it's it, it's it's more manageable than than you know these long data migration paths that, that you saw in the past with the forklift upgrades and things like that. Um, and, um, and people sometimes also uh, incorrectly in my mind assume that, well, you know, I'm running in Azure or Amazon and I have EBS or, or whatever. Um, it's fine, but still somebody needs to manage these volumes, right? Even though that you, you don't own the box that serves the volume, it still needs to be managed, right? Who, who has access to these volumes? Who creates them? Who can attach them to what? So you still have these storage, storage management aspects that you need to consider even more so if you go through different clouds. And then lastly, uh, you see more higher performance workloads popping up in the cloud as well. And uh, you see situations where people use physical uh, storage in the cloud, but nonetheless, it's still like a dedicated machine. And they also want to transparently consume it as if it were an EBS volume, right? So it's like like a physical server in the cloud, but it should uh, walk and talk and quack like an EBS volume, let's say. So yeah, the abstraction, uh, uh, ideally zero cost is, is, is what makes it uh, something that you know, gets us involved. Good. I've got to hand it over to Audrey really quickly because I actually have a call with someone from MyData and somebody from Datastacks. Um, but I'll jump back in in a second. Audrey, I want you to get them deeply into the debate between stateful and stateless. And I want to remind that Jeffrey said there is no, no such thing as stateless in our previous <laughs> meetup that we had. So Audrey, I'm going to turn it over to you right now. I'll be back in a bit. Okay, great. See you. Bye-bye. No, I, I just have one one uh, one question related to what you just said, uh, Jeffrey. Um, so when we talk about having the storage outside of your the data center where you're running your no your 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 Kubernetes cluster, or in case of even in multi-cloud, maybe you run it no on a, on a on a third party. Uh, you're contracting a third party service for the for the data no with high uh, 
high-speed data options. So how, what is then the biggest uh, thing that, that clients or people uh, walk against? Like what is their biggest problem there? Do they not con- are they not concerned about the costs of networking or about you know, these kind of things or, or the latency be- be- between these, these different clouds and services? Right. Yeah. So, so software can, can never um, mitigate physical latency, uh, of course. So, you know, it's like there is no magic bullet to, to eradicate latency between different data centers and whatnot. But depending on the type of customers, a lot of the customers have this uh, backbone connection uh, to a, mm-hmm. um, you know, this, this big fat pipe, let's say, and, and they have their failover service. So usually they had two data centers and they would replicate between them. And, you know, the more um, um, expensive environments had a, had a cluster across the two data centers even. So they could have, you know, transparent failovers and whatnot. And what you see is that this, this failover data center is starting to move towards the cloud because, you know, you can save a lot of money there. Um, and then as they are in there, they start to consume the cloud because it's so easy. It's like, well, I could just click this button and boom, I have a VM opposed to asking for a resource in the VM going through the paperwork. And, you know, two weeks later, you might have a VM, right? So yeah. it's, it's like this, this, this instant on off um, and, and instant gratification, uh, really, uh, when it comes to IT. And so... And then all of a sudden you have some useful data in your, in your cloud. And now the question is, okay, so, but how do I get it back? Right. And, and these are, are, are things that you can actually achieve relatively simple if the data is, is actually, uh, or if the connection is, is fast enough, but it doesn't have to be like instant. Sometimes you could have an asynchronous copy happening in the background as well. Um, but what you can, for example, do is you, you can, you can, you can put this, this, well, I, I, I don't want to get into too many specifics, but we call this a nexus. We, you, you can insert it in the data path um, and then all IO is served as normal, but as it gets served, we can route IO somewhere else. And if you wait long enough, let's say you have a complete new copy of your existing data while the data was online. And these, these techniques are not new, by the way. They, they, these techniques have been on the market for like forever, but usually they have been in, in like more hardware type like solutions. And obviously when I say hardware, it's just, you know, a Dell server with a sticker on it, but you get the point. It was, we're more like appliances. And now because CPUs have, have gotten so powerful because network bandwidth has gotten so uh, high, um, you can do this in software. And, and the nice thing is then through the orchestration layer, you can define like exactly for what piece of the puzzle you wanna have that happen. Whereas the more traditional aspect is, is like you can replicate the whole volume or nothing at all, right? So, well, I just want to create a small part of a volume. And in in particular, when you're talking about virtual machine type like constructs where you had a data store and all the VMs are on the data store and you could either replicate the whole volume that is in the data store or individual pieces through third-party software again, um, but it's never been this granular. And, and this is uh, something that uh, makes that more uh, feasible, more so because the individual data sets are somewhat smaller, right? So uh, you don't see a single container uh, running a petabyte of data, for example. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah so that's, that's one of the, uh, yeah, I hope that answers your question somewhat. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was wondering, like, uh, Michelle works with, um, no, with, with Datastacks, with Cassandra. Um, I mean, they're running also their, uh, their services, of course, uh, on Kubernetes. That's what it's, uh, what there's, at least what you're going for. I've been reading through the blog lately also pretty much seeing what you guys are trying to, to serve. So how do you stand in, in that point also of, of you no, know, we can, we can actually make, make this get going to a bit to the, to the part what Bart said, no, the stateless versus, versus stateful also at the moment, but like, yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the, to, to come back to the stateful and stateless. So the, there was this, uh, was this previous, uh, I, 
don't know exactly the date, but I said, well, there is no such thing as stateless when you come to think of it, because a computer, by virtue of it being a von Neumann cycle, it's always stateful. The question is, is like, do you care about the state? Is it ephemeral or not? And is it, you know, so the worst thing that can happen to me when I'm shopping at uh, Bol.com to stay in, in, in the Dutch uh, zone, <laughs> it's like, if, if that service crashes while I'm shopping, the worst thing that can happen to me is that I have to fill my basket again, right? So, so the, 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 the implication of losing the data is, is not all that big. Now, obviously, if, if, if Bol would lose its inventory database, like that's a freaking disaster, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, where on the spectrum are you? And where does it matter if you lose the data? What is the implication? But computers, by definition, always have state. So databases like, like Cassandra um, have the ability to have a fine-grained control over the stuff that you store within the database, how that data should be available. Um, and um, so how that relates to what we're doing is, is that we don't have to do any sophisticated replication or what have you in order for us to be useful to you. Because as you have physical machines, let's say on an on-prem uh, Kubernetes cluster, like, like maybe you're running OpenShift or, or something like that, it's kind of useful to have a system that allows you to leverage the local devices in any way you want, um, such that you can give them to uh, a system like Cassandra, because at the end of the day, Cassandra needs to have uh, storage devices, if you will, that, that uh, allows it to store the data that it tries to store. So it's, it's not, it's, it's like, yeah, you just have a disk. You just gave us a disk. Yeah, we just gave you a disk. In that particular case, we just gave you a disk, yeah. Mm -hmm if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Misha, you want to comment on that? Uh, yeah, especially about it... your part now, your, your, your role and your position with Cassandra and... Uh, you know, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm really into the data management part, right? And data management usually, as, as Jeffrey also says, is something that has to be uh, quite stateful. Um, that's, that's something that you expect. However, I think that, that the whole discussion about stateless and stateful is really interesting because if, if you take a good look at, at the possibilities that uh, Kubernetes gives you, it's also something that we are actually utilizing. You know? So Jeffrey did the best explanation about Cassandra that, 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 that could be done. I probably wouldn't be able to match that, but um, <laughs> you know he's right. Um, some of the innovations that we've been working on now is, is a new project called Stargate. Um, I don't know if Jeffrey or Ari, you, you heard about that. Now, Stargate essentially uh, is, um, is a solution that allows you to, to distribute the load between compute and data ma uh, management, uh, to distribute that off of each other, right? So the, the Cassandra nodes in the cluster that are responsible for storing the data don't really have to take up on the, uh, on, the, on the computation workload anymore. That is something that is now handled by something else, which is uh, uh, done by Stargate. So uh, Stargate allows you to attach to the stateful containers um, that, uh, that run uh, uh, for uh, Cassandra with the persistent volumes. And Stargate then allows you to, to run you know, the computation workloads on the nodes that um, are available out of Stargate. You know, so I, I think that that's a nice example also about how can you leverage uh, the, the capabilities uh, of the, um, you know, of, 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 in this case, Kubernetes um, so that it works for you, uh, allowing you to create better performance on your stateful containers running Cassandra with um, yeah, with, with uh, persistent volumes. And on the other hand, uh, the, the containers that are running uh, the computation workloads, uh, which obviously can be uh, stateless. Yeah. And so I, I really like that, that separation of concern that yeah. is possible because of this. Yeah, and that's actually a good segue into, into something that just popped in my head. And, and because what you see is that the, uh, the requirements that you have for running compute, 
are vastly different than for running storage. You yeah. need a lot less CPU to saturate your storage backend um, than you would need to, I don't know, do a, some machine learning exercise, right? So you see a lot of this, this they call it, you know, let's say storage segregation where you have a set of machines, either physical or virtual, doesn't really matter, that have specific roles to do the data storing part. And then you have the compute layers that connect to those storage layers, if you will, that do the com computational part. And you scale them very differently and they have a very different price tag uh, along mm -hmm. with it, obviously, when you, when you, when you yeah. buy them. So being able to, to split up these, these different roles, if you will, in terms of what the system needs to do is, is, is something that the hyperscalers do a lot Actually, I was uh, at a, at a uh, presentation from, from eBay and they basically talked about how do we, you know, scale and how do we design our data center, which was, which was very interesting. Um, and they, they have this clear separation of compute, storage and networking. They're all hardware in the sense of servers, um, but they're just all servers. Mm -hmm. How do you know, I? And I think that uh, sorry, Michel. I, I would, I would, uh, yeah, you can you can finish it in a second. Uh, I just have one question in the middle. How do I see the this this separation like on from a management perspective? Like me being a system engineer or a administrator managing that? No right uh, or uh, no uh, like do you give me different parts with different uh resources there or how is this separate how is this separation done yeah exactly exactly it's it's a matter of defining the resources for the, the different types of pods you know essentially when, when i was talking about stargate stargate it's uh, it's it, it's also a cassandra node but then it's it's a specialized node that doesn't do any data main, uh, management and data storage on it right so um with that separation, it, you, it also allows you to define different types of resources for those different use cases. So that's quite easy to do. Actually, it brings another big advantage. And that is something that more and more organizations are interested also, and that is serverless, right? So if, if you're able to run your computational or evaluation, I should better say, evaluation workloads uh, separate from your data management workloads, you know, it also allows you to scale them separately, uh, as Jeffrey also mentioned. Having that allows you to suddenly step into the world of serverless. Yeah, and that is something that 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 Datastax themselves is now now uh, now using. Yeah? So we we have the 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 Astra um, the Astra offering, which essentially is Cassandra as a service. Uh, but now we're going into beta with the serverless offering doing exactly this, you know, scaling these two types of workloads separately from each other in such a way that you only have to pay for the actual amount of usage that you use those, uh, those, uh, those two types of workloads. Yeah, so I think that that, uh, I'm afraid to, to mention the word again, but coming back to third course for ownership, um, yeah, I, I think that that's a big advantage uh, in, in that uh, area. We, we, we've got one question because we're still within in the area. Um, now we're there with nah, the stateless and stateful. There has not been really a big debate there because I think uh, you're both on the same... Uh, uh, no, you're thinking this in the same way in that sense. But uh, from, if I'm if I'm uh, pronouncing it well, Yves Weiser asks, did, this, did CSI kill the stateless versus stateful debate? So... CSI is being uh, not a uh, yeah orchestrator and uh, no an orchestrator not it's the the service that that can so, manage storage right yeah so so CSI is is the is the standardization if you will of a set of uh, uh, RPC or gRPC to be exact uh, methods that if a storage system uh, implements these methods it can be used within Kubernetes. Um, so it's like an abstraction. Um, it comes in, in with, with three major uh, components, uh, controller and agent, uh, and uh, one I can't come up with right now, register, I think. Um, and the controller basically is responsible for receiving the, the requests to create a volume, 
it does whatever it needs to do, which is very specific uh, for storage, uh, per storage vendor. Um, and then the agent that runs on the node, like the cuplet that does the actual mounting and mount propagating and, and, and whatnot. And, and this, this allows any storage vendor uh, more or less to um, connect to Kubernetes and they just know that it should and would work. Um, but the, the actual question is, 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 did it kill the debate? Um, and this is my, oddly enough, although I'm in storage since like forever, I think the less data you keep, the better it is for your own health, right? Because if you don't have the data, you don't have to worry about, for example, the data breaches, right? If you don't have the data, you don't have to worry about backing it up. So the less data you have, the better it is. So the less state that you can keep, the better it is for yourself. Um, obviously, you should keep enough such that you can uh, you know, keep the data that is that is valuable, um, but the the notion that CSI make, make, makes it, let's say, uh, irrelevant if it's stateful or stateless, I don't necessarily think that that's the case because there is this implicit ordering that happens. For example, when scheduling, so what that means is is that the the volume, the CSI volume, needs to be there before the the workload can start. Uh, that's one of the one of the things to consider. The other thing to consider is, is is like are all the nodes on the same network as the storage system, right? And typically, in a traditional sense, that usually is not the case. They had this, if two different networks, the local area network and the storage area network, and they were separated for good reasons. So, it is it is not like uh, the solution to everything and anything, um, but it does make uh, starting off easier. And the other thing to consider is is that if you have all these Kubernetes nodes connected through CSI um, to your storage system, whatever storage system it is, uh, if it is a proprietary system, storage system, it's even more uh, dangerous, I, I should say, or could say, is that if the storage system fails whenever it's distributed or just a single box or whatever, all the workloads in Kubernetes uh, die with it, right? So it's like this avalanche effect. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, it's, it's, it, one should tread carefully, uh, to, to, uh, you know, consider stateless and stateful, like all the time, regardless of CSI or not, I, I think, um, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. You should always take it into account. You, you don't know, you don't really need to be, uh, yeah, stateful yeah. Uh, when it's not necessary in that sense. Uh, Eves, sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong. I think it's Eves. Eves uh, says, good point. He, he or she made another comment. Uh, after, after serverless, you get storageless. And then uh, is the comment. Serverless is what Michel already mentioned before. So storageless, would that be a possibility then? If there's a wink there, of course, involved. Yeah, well, so, you know, it, it depends on, on uh, I mean, there, there are certainly uh, innovations happening, if you will, um, in, in, in storage land. So, so to, to give you an example, uh, certain companies that do some sequencing on whatever form of data could be an image, could be whatever. Um, let's say that they want to want to run something in, in the, or let, let's, let's, let's say a, a big picture, like a big photograph, and you want to do some image analysis on it. More often than not, when this, these type of systems are deployed within Kubernetes, what you see happening is, is through a form of an init container, the object gets downloaded, uh, then the object is downloaded on that node where the workload was scheduled. Then the actual application that does the algorithm gets started, right? And then it does its computation, it, puts the results somewhere and then the container is destroyed and the data is destroyed again and you know you have your results. So that's that's what you typically see. And and the the init container is the actual thing that copies the data from the, the cloud to you know that machine. And it's like, well that's a little bit you know upside down, is it not? It's like why would you not do it the other way around where you start up the container where that object already is, right? And so that, that, that ties into things like, like computational storage a bit, uh, where you see a lot of that happening where you, you put computational power within the storage systems where you could say that your storage system 
almost becomes a, a computer with a hard disk. And it's like, wait a minute, what do you mean computer with a hard disk? <laughs> so <laughs> it, it plays a little bit with your head, uh, but you get the point, right? The storage systems themselves become far more sophisticated and they have embedded uh, CPUs that allow you to do certain things. And these things start out small with, with error correction and checksum. Um, access uh, things and stuff alike. Um, but also because um, the, uh, the gaming industry recently, uh, I don't think you can buy them yet, or at least not that I know of. Let's take the, the, the PlayStation 5, for example. One of the, one of the things that they, they said that was cool about it is that they had the ability to directly move the data into the GPU it's like, yeah, okay, so what does that mean, right? Because what today on all of our machines, what happens is, is that the, the, the CPU and the uh, hard drive and the application, they all communicate in tandem to get data from the d device into memory. And then, you know, it's like this handoff constantly where the kernel is, is doing all the, the waitering, if you will. Um, and with, with these 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 smart NICs and, and data processing units, it is basically, it allows the storage to directly talk to, in this case, the, the GPU. And, and the benefit of that is that the CPU doesn't get involved, first thing. And secondly, the CPU would just get in the way anyway, because these GPUs are so fast, the PCIe devices are so fast. So you get this peer-to-peer -peer, uh, data transfer. And so uh, you see a lot of uh, stuff uh, happening in that space as well. It's uh, uh, NVIDIA or Mellanox, who was acquired by NVIDIA, had uh, technology that does exactly that. Um, and so it's like, yeah, we, you, you get into this point where you have this, you could envision yourself a Kubernetes cluster where your Kubernetes nodes are not regular machines anymore, but could be either a DPU or a smart NIC uh, or a smart hard disk, right? So, and uh, it just abstracts it all away. And for the, for the operator, it doesn't really matter. He just types YAML, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at the end, all the hardware is, is evolving also in that sense and, and, and getting yeah. different roles uh, in that sense. We, we, we have uh, seven minutes left on the clock. Um, I was wondering, Michel, I don't know if that gives you a little bit of time so that we still have two minutes or three minutes at the end uh, for the last uh, summary uh, to show you some to show something. Did you prepare anything, uh, Michel? Um, so we were talking about a bit of a demo, but uh, I, I don't know think if it's, it's, it's yeah. a bit difficult to do that in uh, in such a short time. So maybe we should uh, schedule something uh, something uh, some other time for that. Okay. No problem. No problem. Um, so I'm, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I think it's really cool to see, you know, how how all these these spots come up, and it it will be just great watching them all come alive together, and you know, or work. die together, like or, fingers crossed. Well, like maybe, the... maybe die a few times before <laughs> they come up. You know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So I, I'd yeah. be happy to do that uh, um, some other time. Okay. Okay. So, as a as some as a closing point, not the last point, but one of the closing points, uh, I've sent it to you, you guys, yesterday. Uh, any war story to tell, Michelle? You mentioned that you do not really have a war story yet for for the group to to share with us. But any war story about something that broke a cluster that totally went? Well, I don't want to swear here or. Actually, something that really works. Uh, I think that's really cool. That's also um, good. Yeah. You know, so I worked with one of the uh, one of the largest airports in uh, in Europe, and um, they're actually running now their operational processes uh, on top of Kubernetes. You know, so in my mind, that is just just so cool. You know, you you, you get into the car, you're in your, in the taxi. You get your app to understand, hey, which which gate do I need to go to? You know, what? Uh, where's the security check-in? You enter the the airport. You have all these screens where you know the the information about uh, landing and uh, and the, the flights are. Um, imagine that not working, right? Imagine million a million people coming to the airport on a day not knowing where they have to go. 
imagine the 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 planes uh, um, needing to taxi to the to the to the um, to the gates, not knowing where they have to go. You know, if that operational process doesn't work, you better close down the whole airport because it will become a big mess. Yeah, right? yeah, of course, yeah. So Definitely. I I think it's 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 a great example and 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 a mind blowing example to see that even those types of operational processors, uh, people trust them to run in, to run it on Kubernetes, you know? And to me that says um, that Kubernetes is, uh, is, uh, is mature and ready to run critical workloads. Nice, nice. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. That's a very good, uh, very, it's a very good story. Uh, it shows the, the maturity also of, uh, of these technologies if, 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 Nah, companies it's uh, companies or how do you want to call it that a whole airport now that's multiple companies but if a if a big place like this is using that jeffrey any war stories from your side in two minutes uh well so it, it wasn't it was not with kubernetes it was with uh uh docker swarm uh and a combination of compose but the hidden snake in the grass that kubernetes can't rescue you from is this phenomenon called firmware <laughs> and it is it is it is deeply evil. It is dark. Nobody knows what it does. You can't touch it. You can't change it. Uh, you're you're completely uh, uh, held hostage by it. Um, and uh, the the one of the interesting examples there was I was I was waking up and I was working for a different company. And and my boss back then, uh, his name was Bill. Uh, God bless his soul. Uh, he texted me with a little text help. Uh, because something wasn't going well. And it turned out that we had this, this, this big uh, Docker swarm thing in. I don't know exactly what those containers were doing. And quite frankly, I didn't care. Um, but they all would crash. And you, you guess it was our fault, or so it seemed. It turned out that there was a, uh, uh, a JBot, which is, which is a big box where you put disks in. Um, and they have this backplane, which is uh, operated by a small uh, computer, which is running firmware. And that thing decided to reboot. Um, and it did so actually with a certain pattern of three and a half hours. And so the system would come up three and a half hours later, the, the small chip, it's like this, not even the size of a credit card, right? Very, very small, rebooted. And the whole infrastructure on top of it, two and a half million dollar <laughs> would just <laughs> pointless. So right. firmware is, uh, is, 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 should be anybody's enemy right now. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But the comment we have from Eve is firmwares and compatibility matrix. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Those are the other ones. Yeah. 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 Very yeah, good right. one. Very good one. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Nice. Uh, nice story. Expensive story. That would have been, I guess, a very yeah. expensive story if uh, something uh, so big goes down. Yeah. 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 And it's it's... usually nobody knows how these firmwares work. Uh, no. So no. It's like, yeah, we'll, we'll send a new one and hope that it's better. And obviously, it wasn't. So yeah. 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 Uh, no. To to close up the the conversation, as uh, some of you know, uh, we uh, we always try to. Uh, to do something special uh, during these uh, these meetups, uh, during the the Tuesday meetup, we have a sketch artist, and that's what we've used also, which is uh, sketching what we've talked about on the background. Uh, I guess there will be some Dutch things involved and everything. So I don't know, Gorka, can you show us Angel's screen, please? There it is. If you can see, look at Bart's screen, so. There we are, wow. typical Dutch, you know, with the orange and everything. So that's like, uh, like our uh, our thank you to the to the speakers uh, involved Amazing. for the time. So really cool. no, yeah, in the name of of the doc community, really nice. we want to we want to thank you for uh, participating. Um, of course, uh, I guess that we will uh, we will uh, be in touch for for future uh, for future meetups. Um, you're both also in the in the doc community Slack group. So anybody who is not a member yet of our Slack group, uh, just join our Slack group, and you can ask any question you want uh, to Jeffrey and and Michelle. Um, yeah. yeah, I know. I would like to add add to that, if I may. So like, if there is a particular topic that 
uh, we should zoom into and, and you know, handle it a little bit more in depth. Uh, let us know, right? And then we can can uh, yeah. have it a little bit more focused because we're a little, a little bit over overall the map of course right now which is yeah this is uh, as a first uh, kickoff for the from the for the dutch uh, doc meetups for the data and kubernetes meetups uh, it has been a nice general overview uh, yeah the, the idea is to in, in future meetups to, to, to maybe go into more detailed uh, topics and, and touch base uh, touch base there uh, i want to thank you both for your time and and yeah and definitely uh, we'll stay in uh, we'll stay in touch so and thanks of course for all the attendees next month we, we will Try to be there again, uh, probably also on a Thursday around four o'clock. Um, so have a good afternoon. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for bye having bye. us. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.